Our scripture reading tonight is from the New Testament, what may be the first or earliest of the writings of Paul that we have in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning the reading at verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. The Christian faith is centered in a person called Jesus. That faith includes remembering a whole series of events that have happened in real history. If you're conscious of the church year, today marks the seventh Sunday of Easter. Those who follow the church year recognize that these events, there are central events that need to be remembered often. So, church year includes major emphases on several of these. It was about five months ago that we were thinking about the birth of Jesus, his identification with us as a real human being. And for that one, we have the whole culture thinking with us. More recently, we considered his betrayal, his death, and his resurrection. The culture pretty much ignored that and let the Christian church think about those events. This morning, you recognize the ascension following Ascension Day three days ago. Next Sunday, it will be the sending of the Holy Spirit to us on Pentecost. All historical events in the past that we remember. But after the next Sunday, then what? Well, it was about a year ago that we could thank Carol's camping for reminding us that there's more yet to come. He caught the attention not only of Christians in this country, but the secular media to a large extent when he told us that he knew what day that would happen. Well, we've pretty well forgotten Harold Camping, and we've forgotten a year ago. But we dare not forget what he was talking about, what is known as the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've been Christian Reformed now for about 26 years, and I have an observation. My observation is that the return of Jesus is rarely talked about in Christian Reformed circles. 
I think if I were and you were participating in churches perhaps that are newer, that is in the last century they were formed, we would find a lot more talk about that second coming. Now, my perception of neglect does not mean that the second coming lacks importance. And so this evening, I want to be pointing you to one of the primary Bible passages that speaks about the return of our Lord Jesus. Why talk about it? Well, Romans 8 tells us that anticipation of future glory will help us handle the hard times that we now face. And 1 Thessalonians 4 that we've read answers the question, what's actually going to happen that's going to transition us to that future glory? In the years that I've been retired, and I'm finishing up year four now, I have preached more funeral sermons than probably in the previous 30 or 40 years. And so once again yesterday, I was standing with an assembly like this in a memorial service. At such point, people want to know what's ahead, what's happened to the person who left, and what's going to happen in the future. Now, the Bible and the New Testament treats this as an important theme. About two-thirds of the books of the New Testament speak of the return of Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians, it's in every chapter. One, two, three, four, five, spoken of all the way through the letter. And according to what Paul teaches us here, it is intended to be a source of encouragement for us. It's not a moment of, of being fearful. It's not just to satisfy curiosity. It is to bring courage to us and hope about that future. So I want to share with you three predictions that are found in the passage. The first prediction is that sleeping Christians will be made whole on that day. At verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Sleep in the New Testament is a metaphor of death, used repeatedly. Now, when Jesus died, a very un one of the very unusual things that happened at that point was that there were bodies resurrected that Friday afternoon. Matthew 27 says the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. He said, well, so? If you had the New American Standard Bible, which is more literal, it reads, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. That's the common way for the New Testament to speak of death. When Stephen was stoned in Acts 7, at the end it says, he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, a long chapter that talks about resurrection, says most of whom are still living, these hundreds who had seen Jesus, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Consistently in the New Testament, death for a believer, a Christian, is spoken of as fallen asleep. 
we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. And then there's a jarring contrast in the next verse. We believe that Jesus died. Not that Jesus fell asleep. Believers fall asleep. Jesus died. Jesus was cut off from his father. Jesus experienced the horror of death without any relief from it. It could not be called sleep in his situation. What do you do with this sleep metaphor? Well, there are followers of Jesus, some of whom worship within 100 yards of where we are right now, who conclude that references to sleep are literal. The Seventh-day Adventists are the best known of such folks. And when I got married many years ago, at that moment, I gained a whole lot of Adventist relatives. The scriptures or the teachings of the Adventists are these, and I'm quoting, we as Adventists believe that in general, the scriptures teach that the soul of man represents the whole man, that the soul cannot exist apart from the body, for man is a unit. We as Adventists have reached the definite conclusion that man rests in the tomb until the resurrection morning. They take that word sleep very literally. And so the oldest of our Adventist relatives, I think she's 91 now, writes to us a number of times each year, and each time she reflects on the fact that her husband died several years ago and that George has been asleep for X number of years and months. Somehow, I understand, but this does not seem to way, be the way the Apostle Paul approaches this. I'll give you an example. In Philippians 1, Paul is wrestling with, is my life about here on earth about over? Uh, am I going to be with Christ, or am I going to be here on earth? Here's his language. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, that will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Notice the contrast. When Paul reflects on this, either he is here on earth, visible, or he is with Christ. He doesn't see it as an intermediate state where he is asleep. And so in 1 Thessalonians, our passage, we get to verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Those folks, and I count among them the uh, woman whose service I conducted yesterday, will be returning from a state of rest, but of consciousness, of happiness, but of incompleteness. A state that is impermanent, temporary, that will have an end to it. 
They will be brought with Jesus when he comes. Stephen there in Acts 7, there at the end of the story, Stephen looked up and he saw Jesus. And Jesus received his spirit on that moment. Stephen is still with Jesus. But that's not the end. Jesus will come back and those sleeping saints will be raised to life. They will come to participate in the events at the end of the world. And after an unnatural division of body and consciousness, those sleeping Christians will be made whole. A second prediction. All Christians will be united. Now, we're getting closer to the core of this passage. You see, the Christians in Thessalonica were concerned about what seemed like discrimination. They were not doubting about whether Christians who had died would come back to life. They were confident on that matter. But they wondered who would be first in line on that day. Would those who died somehow be at a disadvantage because they're not as visible as those of us who are alive? And verse 15, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 15 is written as a response to their question. And in that verse, we're going to see that the end of the era is going to involve absolute impartiality among Christians. You need not fear that there's going to be some kind of discrimination on that day. Now, Paul writes that, and he, he uses a phrase that, that should cause you to be a bit puzzled. The opening phrase of verse 15, according to the Lord's own word, according to something that Jesus said. And I, you know, you might want to go back and read the four Gospels, all the words of Jesus, you won't find this. Paul says, Jesus said, here's what's going to happen. Well, it's something that Jesus said that was passed on to Paul and I suppose to all the other Christians, but it's not recorded in the four Gospels. That doesn't make it any less true or authoritative. Paul can say, Jesus said this, and here's what's going to happen. And he sketches four steps in the process. On that day, the first step is that those who have left us, who have died, who have disappeared from our view, are going to rise. 16b, the dead in Christ will rise first. Their bodies and their souls will be reunited. They will be whole persons once again. The second step is that we who are still alive are going to be joined with them. All believers will be united. Verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them. So think of families that have been split, of friends that have been separated, of churches, all brought back together. Paul says the third step is that Jesus is going to be officially welcomed. Verse 17, 
will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And that word meet is a word that was used at that time to describe the greeting of a dignitary. Now, frankly, I haven't paid a lot of attention to what's been happening in downtown Chicago today or tomorrow or the next day, but I know a lot of dignitaries in town, right? We're all hearing about the protection, but the dignitaries are in town. Somebody is meeting them and greeting them and welcoming them to our city. I, I say picture the governor of a state welcoming a president. That's the imagery here. Think of Governor Quinn and President Obama. But in this scene, in 1 Thessalonians, it's not two political people. The scene is all Christians welcoming Jesus as their Messiah as he returns. The fourth step, no more separation. Verse 17. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So, sleeping Christians will be made whole. All Christians will be united. And the third prediction is this is all going to happen publicly. In verse 16, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Public. Yeah. Jesus starts with a shout. If you think of meek and mild Jesus, who's always quiet, that's not the image here. Jesus will come with a loud command. It's the kind of order that an officer shouts to his troops. That's the imagery here. It's the command of a conqueror. Having conquered, he shouts out in triumph. It's the kind of thing that is recorded in John 5 when Jesus says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. There was a moment when Jesus spoke and he said, Lazarus, come forth. But in this coming moment, it's not one person. It's a much more general call, come forth to life again. That's noisy. Jesus shouting. But it's also noise, see, because of the voice of the archangel. It's an added voice. Now Jude, that little obscure book at the end of the Bible, in verse 9 it speaks of Michael, the archangel. And Michael's name means, who is like God? Michael in the Old Testament was the protector of Israel. But on this last great day, Michael, or another archangel, is going to be there. So now we have two loud voices. We have Jesus shouting out. We have the archangel shouting out as well. But there's more. Because verse 16 says you have the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. I want to go down that path of trumpets in the Bible for a bit. Trumpet shows up in the Old Testament when the Ten Commandments were given. Remember the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, preceding chapter, it says, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning, 
with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. So a trumpet signal that God is coming down. In a more obscure passage in Zechariah, it says the trumpet announces that God is coming for a specific purpose, to rescue his people. The Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms to the south. <coughs> and the Lord Almighty will shield them. So the trumpet, God's coming down. Trumpet, God's coming down to rescue. Trumpet sometimes is more than a signal that he's going to defend his people, but it's a positive sound of triumph. Think of Jericho walking around the city for seven days, and on the seventh day, there was a shout of triumph with the sound of the trumpets, and the walls fell down. A trumpet, God's coming. A trumpet, God's coming to rescue a trumpet, God is coming in triumph. A trumpet is also part of the Old Testament year of Jubilee. That special time described in Leviticus 25, when liberty was proclaimed for all of God's people. So we think of a trumpet with liberty, with freedom as well. And in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, the trumpet becomes a sign of resurrection and perfection. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And then Jesus says, the trumpet is also the sound that sends out the angels. Matthew 24. He'll send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Quite a picture. When the trumpets sound, all kinds of wonderful things are going on. So what's it sound like on that day? Jesus shouting, an archangel shouting, the trumpet blowing louder and louder. And here's where I get confused. Because I know that some Christians believe that 1 Thessalonians is describing a very private thing, a secret event, when Christians are to be removed from the earth, and it's spoken of as a rapture, a catching up into the air. But when I read the text, this future event seems very public to me. It's certainly going to be audible with a shout and a trumpet. It's going to be visible when Jesus left. 
When he left those disciples and he ascended into heaven, as you studied about this morning, he said that he would return in like manner. So his exit was visible, and I anticipate that his return is going to be visible also. I personally don't think the scriptures teach that Christ is going to return twice. The first time secretly and then publicly a thousand years later. Well, let's draw this to a conclusion. You see, what we should receive from this is the same thing that the Thessalonians were to receive when they first heard it. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. We've had Christian friends. We've had family members who have died. And when that happens, we're sorrowful because of the loss to us. But the important thing is that we have hope. In 13, it said, we are not to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Grieve, yes, but not without hope. You see, Paul was speaking to a helpless and hopeless kind of world. The Greeks had said there was no future for the body after death. The soul's going to enter a dismal realm where it longs for its past life on earth. Some of you have had to study Homer's Iliad. It may be a great piece of writing, but it ends with funeral rites. And nothing follows after the funeral. Now, some of the Greek philosophers had an idea of life beyond the grave, but that idea apparently never penetrated into the lives of ordinary people. The typical attitude of the ancient world to death, the attitude toward death, was one of utter hopelessness. The attitude that's conveyed in so many of the Woody Allen movies where when it's all over, where is the hope? You see, whether we're in the late 20th century, beginning the 21st century, influenced by folks like Woody Allen, or we're back in the first century, influenced by the Greeks, those are hopeless outlooks on life. But it's not for us. The contrast is that we anticipate a Christ, a Jesus, who's going to come and meet us there's going to be a moment where we're going to hear that shout. We're going to hear that trumpet. We're going to know it's a day of triumph. And our bodies are going to be resurrected if we have left this earth. And so I say to you tonight, encourage each other with these words. Amen. Let's pray together.